how much any of you know about dogs and dreaming. I imagine those of you who are or have been people who hang out with dogs know all about it. It being the path that dogs dream. Sometimes better than people even. Especially if your dog is my dog and the people to whom the dog is being compared are as insomniacal as my dog's person. But so my dog dreams of things like Tom Verlaine, which I've deduced from her fond unconscious whistling. And she dreams about things like catching small prey with which to woo Tom Verlaine. Or so I'd guess by the way her legs instinctively kick at an exciting moment in the dream. You ever notice that when you're sick or moody, there's generally only one type of music you can stand? I've just now realised that. Hello, it's Thursday, the 20th of March, 2008, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. A Handful of Dates by Tayeb Salih. I must have been very young at the time. Well, I don't remember exactly how old I was, I do remember that when people saw me with my grandfather, they would pat me on the head and give my cheek a pinch. Things they didn't do to my grandfather. The strange thing was that I never used to go out with my father. Rather, it was my grandfather who would take me with him wherever he went. Except for the mornings, when I would go to the mosque to learn the Quran. The mosque, the river, and the fields, these were the landmarks in our life. While most of the children of my age grumbled at having to go to the mosque to learn the Quran, I used to love it. The reason was, no doubt, that I was quick at learning by heart and the sheikh always asked me to stand up and recite the chapter of the merciful whenever we had visitors, who would pat me on my head and cheek just as people did when they saw me with my grandfather. Yes, I used to love the mosque, and I loved the river too. Directly we finished our Quran reading in the morning, I would throw my wooden slate and dart off, quick as a genie, to my mother, hurriedly swallow down my breakfast and run off for a plunge in the river. When tired of swimming about, I would sit on the bank and gaze at the strip of water that wound away eastwards and hid behind a thick wood of acacia trees. I loved to give rein to my imagination and picture to myself a tribe of giants living behind that wood, a people tall and thin, with white beards and sharp noses, like my grandfather. Before my grandfather ever replied to my many questions, he would rub the tip of his nose with his forefinger. As for his beard... It was soft and luxuriant, and as white as cotton wool. Never in my life have I seen 
anything of a purer wideness or greater beauty. My grandfather must also have been extremely tall, for I never saw anyone in the whole area address him without having to look up at him, nor did I see him enter a house without having to bend so low that I was put in mind of the way the river wound round behind the wood of acacia trees. I loved him and would imagine myself when I grew to be a man, tall and slender like him, walking along with great strides. I believe I was his favourite grandchild. No wonder, for my cousins were a stupid bunch. And I, so they say, was an intelligent child. I used to know when my grandfather wanted me to laugh when to be silent. Also, I would remember the times for his prayers and would bring him his prayer rug and fill the ewer with his ablutions without his having to ask me. When he had nothing else to do, he enjoyed listening to me, reciting to him from the Quran in a lilting voice, and I could tell from his face that he was moved. One day, I asked him about our neighbour, Masood. I said to my grandfather, I fancy you don't like our neighbour, Masood. To which he answered, having rubbed the tip of his nose, He's an indolent man, and I don't like such people. I said to him, What's an indolent man? My grandfather lowered his head for a moment, then looking across at the wide expanse of field, he said, Do you see it stretching out from the edge of the desert tip up to the Nile bank? A hundred feddens. Do you see those dead palms and those trees? Sant, Acacia and Zayal. All this fell into Masood's lap, was inherited by him from his father. Taking advantage of the silence that had descended upon my grandfather, I turned my gaze from him to the vast area defined by his words. I don't care, I told myself. Who owns those dead palms, those trees, or this black cracked earth? All I know is that it's the arena for my dreams and my playground. My grandfather then continued, Yes, my boy, forty years ago all this belonged to Masood. Two-thirds of it is mine now. This was news to me, for I had imagined that the land had belonged to my grandfather ever since God's creation. I didn't own a single feddin when I first set foot in this village. Masood was then the owner of all these riches. The position has changed now, though. And I think that before Allah calls to him, I shall have bought the remaining third as well. 
I do not know why it was. I felt fear at my grandfather's words, and pity for our neighbour Masood. How I wished my grandfather wouldn't do what he'd said. I remember Masood's singing, his beautiful voice and powerful laugh that resembled the gurgling of water. My grandfather never used to laugh. I asked my grandfather why Masood had sold his land. Women. And from the way my grandfather pronounced the word, I felt that women was something terrible. Masood, my boy, was a much married man. Each time he married, he sold me a fadden or two. I made the quick calculation that Masood must have married some ninety women. Then I remembered his three wives, his shabby appearance, his lame donkey, and its dilapidated saddle, his jellaba with the torn sleeves. I had all but rid my mind of the thoughts that jostled in it when I saw the man approaching us, and my grandfather and I exchanged glances. We'll be harvesting the dates today, said Masood. Don't you want to be there? I felt, though, that he did not really want my grandfather to attend. My grandfather, however, jumped to his feet, and I saw that his eyes sparkled momentarily with an intense brightness. He pulled me by the hand, and we went off to the harvesting of Masood's dates. Someone brought my grandfather a stool, covered with an oxhide, while I had remained standing. There was a vast number of people there, but I... Though I knew them all, I found myself, for some reason, watching Masood. Aloof from the great gathering of people, he stood as though it were no concern of his, despite the fact that the dead palms to be harvested were his own. Sometimes his attention would be caught by the sound of a huge clump of dates crashing down from on high. What's? He shouted up at the boy, perched on the very summit of the date palm, who had begun hacking at a clump with his long, sharp sickle. Be careful you don't cut the heart out of the palm. No one paid any attention to what he said, and the boy seated at the very summit of the date palm continued, quickly and energetically, to work away at the branch with his sickle till the clump of dates began to drop like something descending from the heavens. I, however, had begun to think about Masood's phrase, the heart of the palm. I pictured the palm tree as something with feeling, something possessed of a heart that throbbed. I remembered Masood's remark to me when he had once seen me playing about with the branch of a young palm tree. Palm trees, my boy, like humans, experience joy and suffering.
and I had felt an inward and unreasoned embarrassment. When I looked again at the expanse of ground stretching before me, I saw my young companions swarming like ants around the trunks of the palm tree, gathering up dates and eating most of them. The dates were collected into high mounds. I saw people coming along and weighing them into measuring bins and pouring them into sacks, of which I counted thirty. The crowd of people broke up, except for Hussein the merchant, Musa the owner of the field next to ours on the east, and two men I had never seen before. I heard a low whistling sound and saw that my grandfather had fallen asleep. Then I noticed that Masood had not changed his stance, except that he had placed a stalk in his mouth and was munching at it like someone surfeited with food who doesn't know what to do with the mouthful he still has. Suddenly, my grandfather woke up, jumped to his feet, and walked towards the sack of dates. He was followed by Hussein the merchant, Musa the owner of the field next to ours, and the two strangers. I glanced at Masood and saw that he was making his way towards us with extreme slowness, like a man who wants to retreat, but whose feet insist on going forward. They formed a circle around the sacks of dates and began examining them, some taking a date or two to eat. My grandfather gave me a fistful, which I began munching. I saw Masood filling the palms of both hands with dates and bringing them up close to his nose, then returning them. Then I saw them dividing up the sacks between them. Hussein the merchant took ten. Each of the strangers took five. Musa, the owner of the field next to ours on the eastern side, took five. And my grandfather took five. Understanding nothing, I looked at Masood and saw that his eyes were darting about to left and right, like two mice that have lost their way home. You're still fifty pounds in debt to me, said my grandfather to Masood. We'll talk about it later. Hussein called his assistants, and they brought along donkeys. The two strangers produced camels, and the sacks of dates were loaded onto them. One of the donkeys let out a bray which set the camels frothing at the mouth and complaining noisily. I felt myself drawing close to Masood, felt my hand stretch out towards him as though I wanted to touch the hem of his garment. I heard him make a noise in his throat like the rasping of a lamb being slaughtered. For some unknown reason. I experienced a sharp sensation of pain in my chest. I ran off into the distance. 
Hearing my grandfather call after me, I hesitated a little, then continued on my way. I felt at that moment that I hated him. Quickening my pace, it was as though I carried within me a secret I wanted to be rid of. I reached the river bank near the bend it made behind the wood of acacia trees. Then, without knowing why, I put my finger into my throat and spewed up the dates I'd eaten. In the daytime, I watched when I talked. I could jump to one side in time. I kept trying to figure out which of my words had the power to dislodge the rocks. It must have something to do with vibrations, wavelengths. In our city, we are quite experimental. Even a private citizen like myself is infected with the spirit of experiment. I live off the income from my inheritance. My wife and I love gardening above everything. Our few friends are scattered throughout the city. We make a point of being strangers to our neighbours. Our rock garden at the edge of a cliff overlooking a northern cove is quite remarkable. I am sure it would win prizes and be much visited if we were interested in that sort of thing, but our friends respect our wishes to keep our garden private. And our neighbours, whose gardens are severely arranged and have swept paths, do not notice the perfection of our succulents, which they think of as being no more than cliff plants anyway. Nor do they see any order in the way our paths and stepping stones adapt themselves to the terrain. My wife and I have little use for most of what our city gets excited about. We are inclined to scorn prizes and fashion. I thought I was equally indifferent to the fervour for experimentation. Now, in this hole, I have learned better. The second night... Unable to sleep well because of the discomfort of the floor, I planned experiments to try the next day. I have never heard of anyone who was in a hole like mine. Perhaps these conditions are unique. There are plenty of holes into which our citizens have been known to have fallen. Sometimes they were rescued, sometimes they died before they could be got out. Often, no doubt, they just disappeared from sight as I have done. Perhaps no one else discovered how to dislodge boulders as I did. There must be something exceptional about my voice, though no one has ever commented on it. There certainly is nothing odd about my words. They are just ordinary words used with care. Still, though I am not slovenly in my use of words, Neither am I a poet. I must not let this opportunity to experiment slip from me, even though, since I need all the physical strength I have to pile the rocks up, I must work fast before I give out. 
During the night, I planned a series of speeches to try out. I prayed. When our city was founded, many churches were built. Strong, handsome stone structures. Our city had originally been built with walls to withstand the assaults of pirates. To be sure, the pirates were suppressed two centuries ago, and the city grew far beyond the walls, which are now visited by tourists as museum pieces. But our churches, the best ones which look like and once served as fortresses, have been kept in good repair. Services are held in them, the choir schools still function at public expense. I knew many prayers, having been a boy soprano for a few years till my voice cracked. Neither the prayers I recollected, nor the ones I made up, worked to dislodge the stones. I delivered the patriotic speeches memorised by every schoolchild. The salute to the flag, a Constitution Day address... The funeral oration, which had been delivered by our first Prime Minister after the revolution, had established parliamentary government, our oath of allegiance. None of them worked. I gave an exact and full history of how I came to be where I was. I described my condition with scientific accuracy and offered every reasonable hypothesis about why I was doing what I was doing. Nothing happened. I recited a poem, nursery rhymes, a folk tale, the prologue of our constitution. I counted to twenty in Latin. I recited as many of Euclid's axioms as I could recall. No result. I recited a speech from a play I had acted in when I was in college. Actually, I saved this till last, because the speech had become more than the character's words for me. It had come to say what I meant, or at least I had come to mean what it said. The part was a small one. I was one of the lesser court gentlemen. At a crucial moment, the king gives me a vital message. His throne depends on its delivery. Halfway to the nobleman, to whom I am supposed to deliver it, I decide not to. And then the playwright gives me my only important speech, a soliloquy, the great speech of the play. I have no good political reason not to deliver the message. Nothing but good will befall me if I do deliver it. I have never before done such a thing as I am now doing. The longer I try to account to myself and the audience for what I am doing, the stranger my action appears. I labour to find the right words, for my court language is insufficient. Twice in the history of our city, this play one of our classics, has been proscribed because of this speech, which cannot be cut out of the play being its keystone. I recite it now, in my hole. A boulder is dislodged all right, but it almost hits me. It is too large for me to lift to the top of the pile I have made. Worse, it comes from the mouth of the chimney above, enlarging it. 
so that now I must build up my pile even higher than before in order to be able to brace myself in the chimney and work my way out. I have to use our language in my own way. I have to speak for myself. I am in a hole. I want to get out. I don't know what I shall find when I make my way back into the city. I long to see my wife. If she is still alive and well, she will care for me while I recuperate. If she is injured, I will do what I can for her. The stones are heavy. After I put one up into the pile, my muscles do not leave off trembling until I raise my voice to talk another rock down from the jumble above me and then hoist it into place. Each time after such effort, the trembling penetrates into me deeper. I fear I will not have strength to work my way up into the chimney once I have got myself into it. I want to cry, but I must save my strength for words. I do not know why I am here. I did nothing to deserve being thrown down here alone and abandoned. So the rocks fall. What would happen if I did not pretend someone is listening to what I say? I know, of course, that no one hears my voice, but I speak as though I were being listened to. It must be that which gives my voice the right wavelengths to dislodge the stones. It obviously is neither the words themselves nor their arrangements. My experiments have removed these possibilities. In the interests of exact knowledge, I should complain without audience. I know well enough that I have no audience. Not a sound from outside has reached me. But I cannot imagine doing anything so unreasonable as to complain without any audience at all. Even though that is what I am in fact doing. Besides, suppose when I did that all the rocks should fall in on me at once. If I had more strength, I would take the risk. I would try to imagine myself as I am. Meanwhile... I had better get on with my complaining while I still have strength and time. 